My name is Hayley Jane Sims, and you are listening to Your Manchester Stories. Tag Warner is the CEO of global media company and publisher Gay Times. At 25, he is the youngest CEO of any global media brand. Tag has also recently launched the Amplifund Foundation. In partnership with human rights charity Give Out, Amplifund is supporting LGBTQ activism in the media by helping to increase the acceptance of these communities around the world and bring more diverse voices to the forefront of mainstream media in the UK. Joining me today is Paul Marks-Jones, a quality, diversity and inclusion partner at the university. Tag, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. Hi. So would you be able to, first of all, just tell us a little bit about where you grew up? Sure. Um, Cool. Right, straight into it. I grew up in Jersey in the Channel Islands. Um, And that was an interesting experience. I think I don't, I don't, I'm not that positive about it, to be honest. And that's just because that's the authentic truth of it. I didn't love um, my growing up experience in Jersey. I think I found it very um, challenging to find any sort of identities around me that I could feel a part of. And I do think it was a, um, it was a fairly kind of a default experience. And I use the word default because I think it had a lot of um, aspects to it that were quite stereotypical in a way. So it was very white. Um, It was very heterosexual in a kind of, that was the norm. Um, It was always assumed that you would um, grow up, probably go and study somewhere, come back to the island, spend a few years doing something and then marry off fairly quickly and start having children. (laughs) (laughs) And none of those experiences felt um, like ones that I was particularly interested in. Um, So from a very early age, I didn't necessarily feel a part of Jersey. So I always say that I grew up in Jersey, but I don't feel like a Jersey boy, um, as some people label me occasionally, and I go, ugh, no. (laughs) Yeah. And so you had that experience in Jersey and you studied in Manchester. So yeah. what was that journey like? Why was, what, where did the decision come from to, to land here? Um, it was quite considered. So I did, um, I was in school in Jersey and I went to like an all boys, um, an all boys school. And it was kind of like a day board. It wasn't technically, day, it used to be a day board. It used to have actually a boarding house as well. Um, I was kind of, liken it a bit to that because I think it had a lot of characteristics like it was a big old Victorian school it looked a bit like Hogwarts Um, and I think a lot of that kind of like atmosphere was like in the walls definitely so the the atmosphere at the school was um, I think quite typical I guess for a a single sex um, traditional school in the sense that it was very much about where were you going to go to university that was like the narrative from I think about 16 I guess when you're doing your GCSEs you start thinking and your tutors and the um, staff would always kind of like obsess over this narrative of like where are you going to go to university where's your university Um, and everyone always had their answers and of course they're all typical there was like Durham Warwick those were like the two favourites. And then I think after Dur- Durham and Warwick, it was probably like a London universe, like a good, like Russell group. And then the red bricks kind of at some point kind of came in, I guess. Um, and I think because I was a little bit kind of um, anti in some respect, and I didn't really like the um, that narrative that much, I always thought, well, I, w- I don't want to go to like one of the typical ones. And I knew I didn't want to go to a campus 
university in the kind of middle of nowhere. So I knew I had to go to a city. So it was kind of London or Manchester, um, at least in my head. And then I kind of always knew, I think because I didn't feel a massive association with where I grew up, that I would never end up living there. And I knew that London was kind of the place that I would want to be. And so I made this kind of, I think bizarrely, I guess, mature decision at quite a young age that I was like, I'm gonna spend my whole life in London. So don't go to London yet. Like, and although I was desperate to go, I really was. It's like, just get me to London. I was like, no, I've got to do something else first. And I'm so happy I did, because by most accounts, the student experience in London can be quite challenging. And I actually think if I went to London that early, or that quickly and and lived there properly, I think I would have found it really challenging. Whereas Manchester was my kind of like, pubescent kind of my like queer pubescent phase where I like really found I was already out I already knew I was gay and stuff but I definitely found a lot of my identity in Manchester and it felt quite safe yeah it felt like a a safe space to be so it was a considered decision um and yeah I guess that's it so talking about um coming out yeah can you tell us a little about your coming out story and how that impacted on your life and (laughs) how it changed it i always say there's so much more than a coming out story but i think um there's a weird kind of thing about coming out stories and that they um they definitely form a kind of you can assimilate with other people in like the lgbtq and queer community because you talk about your coming out story it's something that often people have alignment over and then um you feel you're kind of one and the same and i think the great thing about coming out stories is hopefully over time they'll become less and less important and significant because they'll become so normalized and so i hope that at one point we'll never talk about coming out stories ever again but um (laughs) yeah in the meantime my coming out story was um I have uh, beautifully liberal parents um, who, um, my dad's like a Londoner and I, I, I knew that wouldn't ever be a problem. So um, my, I came out to my, I came out to my mum first and um, then to my dad within a week. Um, and then I had a boyfriend really early. So I came out when I was 15 years old um, and I had a boyfriend when I was 15, who was a lot older than I was. And I never, I always thought that the scary thing for my parents wasn't the fact that I was gay, it was the fact that I had this like older boyfriend. <laughs> that something they're always a little bit suspicious of. And they should have been because he's a creep. <laughs> and so it was good that they were suspicious of him because he's not a nice person. Um, but hey, that was like, naive and young and I was so excited, I think, by understanding who I was. Um, but anyway, we're not going to talk about him. Um, so the coming out experience was in the summer of my GCSEs and I went back to school in, um, I went back to school in September, yeah, of my AS levels. And, um, I think it kind of word must have got around as it does in like high school. Word goes around, doesn't it? Um, and summer holidays that something's happened and I went back in and it was like, okay, Montague is my real name, not Tag. So everyone called me Monty. So it'd be like, Monty is gay, Monty's gay, Monty's gay. It's finally come out. So it was a tease for being gay. Um, but um, came out. And then, yeah, it was pretty hideous. So I'm not going to kind of glam it up. It was a pretty shit experience. Um, I definitely struggled a lot with bullying, you know, verbal, mental, physical. I was bullied by teachers as well. That was a really challenging thing to go through, um, to kind of have this whole um, experience of the 
I don't know, the kind of like the system that you're taught from a kid, like teachers are going to care about you and look after you not mm-hmm. coming through. I remember really being bullied by one teacher in particular and finding that just like rocked my world because it, it just was so at odds with everything that you were taught as mm-hmm. a child would happen. Um, and so I did start going into my S levels and um, I really kind of started failing to be honest and this is interesting I've never spoken about this ever never spoken about this I really started failing I was like a, I was a nerd proper nerd so I got like really good grades up until GCSEs AS levels went back to school and I think at the time I was like I'm fine none of this is going to affect me but obviously it does mm-hmm. massively um, and so I started failing quite badly and I started really struggling with work and um, with being able to be, you know, present and learn in that environment. I couldn't do it. So my AS levels were a pretty near on disaster, um, which I think was always really challenging because I did have a couple of teachers that were vouching me. The general school consensus was not good or did not feel supportive. And my parents found it very challenging um, having, I think, a kid who they loved and accepted fully and celebrated not being treated in that way in my school environment. Um, But yeah, I started kind of doing quite badly in my results and finished up my ASs doing not great and managing, I think I remember... I blocked quite a lot of it out, I think, because I found it quite fairly distressing. So I blocked lots of it out. But I do think I remember persuading a tutor to give me the right... What are they called? To get into university, you had to have, like, a lesser thing. Do you know what I mean? Like predicted grades. Yeah, predicted grades. I remember convincing them to give me a good predicted grade so I could get into King's in Manchester. Or get in, as in I could get an application. Get an offer. Get an offer. I kind of forgot how this was but yeah I, I could get an offer and I did get an offer from Kings in Manchester decided to come to Manchester um, and in the end of it I kind of started um, not going to school as much in my A2s and teaching myself a lot and I did have a couple of teachers who were really supportive and helped me through that um, um, you know at the behest actually of the school system that was so insisting that I would not I guess do well in that circumstance um, and I did and I got the right grades that I could that I needed to get here so I think it was a bit of a relief to get out of that um, environment for sure um, so I was definitely ready I remember actually arriving in Manchester and being like the world's my oyster this is like this is like the beginning of the rest of my life which was nice it felt it kind of like even though it was like not the best time it felt exciting and I felt very like past is new and I definitely turned up to Manchester and I remember having these feelings of thinking I could just tell anybody what I want no one knows who I am that was so nice it was so nice to come somewhere and be able to kind of start afresh and not have this kind of whole past looming over you I was going to ask like you were known as Monty at school and yeah. tag now did that happen when you came to Manchester no I've gone through two rebrands so <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah I'm a brand strategist really at heart so I've gone through rebrands myself you know how do you know what it's actually weird this is so you know funny I'm going off tangents by the way I'll go on loads of tangents I'm sure during this I'm like how long do you have because I can talk um, the um the thing I love most about creatives and like pop stars is they go through eras. We should all have eras in our own lives. It's so important to have eras. And that you don't need to, I always say to people, you don't have to be like a pop star to have your album cycle like eras. Everyone should have their own eras. It's really good to compartmentalize your life yeah. and to allow yourself to move on. And you can do it through relationships, you can do it through careers. But this total, book, can I swear by the way on this podcast? I know you know swearing enough. We a can little bleep bit. It if we need to bleep. Okay. 
fine. Sorry. <laughs> if you're listening to this right now, I swear in real life loads. Um, <laughs> and I'm not going to swear on this podcast then. So like BS. I can say bullshit, right? Yeah. Bullshit. Fine. <laughs> so bullshit kind of like narrative of like your life being this like lineage thing and it kind of goes on your line. It's just rubbish. It's total rubbish. Your life is full of ups and downs and you go through, you know, um, periods that are amazing and periods that are not so amazing. And I think being able to compartmentalize those is really important. So in, in terms of compartmentalizing part of my life, I made this, again, slightly weird, I guess, but very conscious decision that Monty was going to die when I was like 18 years old. And I got on a plane, um, you know, going from Jersey, I flew to uni and back. And I got on this plane and I was like, no, I'm going to be Montague. And I think that was the era of... This is going to sound really wanky, by the way, but I don't care. This is like, this is who I am. Um, That was the era of, uh, like, Montague. And I think that was because I was like, I've got to adopt the fullest part of, like, my identity in order to then understand where's next from that. And Montague was always, um... Montague was always, like, what my mum called me, and it felt childish. Not in a bad way, but it felt like a child version of myself. And also, um, it was a dog's name. (laughs) So I used to hear Monty and be like, I just sound like a having dog um, I don't want to be a dog anymore so um, Montague was how I was known at university so I've got a few very close best friends I speak to every day from Manchester that I met in my first weeks in Manchester and that are still very close I'm sure we'll be friends for a, a long time if not ever so they call me Montague um, and so Montague is my Manchester identity and then I went into the working world for two years and then TAG was kind of like a purposeful rebrand again. I think that was like a leaving the other part of my life and then it became TAG. There's a guy called um, Ross Barrett who will never listen to this. Ross Barrett's a random person and he'll be like, why are you talking to him about me in podcasts? I knew him for about a month and I met him at this party. It's so funny I remember people's full names, isn't it? I met this random person at a party and he was like, you should call yourself TAG. And I was like, what does that mean? He was like, well, TAG is and it's in Montague. And I was like, oh my God, I found my next era. So that was it. Then it became tag. Did it look? Did it? Did you kind of change your look as well? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've done. Well, I, you you can't see because this is a podcast. For everyone listening, my hair is currently blonde. When this comes out, it won't be blonde again. It will probably be brown. There's there, there's like always a good feeling of like changing your physical identity. Mm. Whether again it's like wardrobe or how you physically look, expressing yourself through fashion, expressing yourself through identity, I think is so important to do. And again, we have this like interesting societal construct that it's kind of um, kooky and weird and you go through a phase and you know, all this stuff. But actually I think I'm loving how the world right now is becoming hopefully more accepting of people going through their own um, identity kind of journey with themselves. I love it more than anything when I see people who aren't in their like teenage phase who are like in different age groups kind of like going and dyeing their hair white and pink like it's just brilliant so um yeah different different names different <laughs> different names that sound really psychopathic <laughs> different names different visual identities yeah so i definitely have changed looks a few times so you were talking about lack of support when you were mm. um, living in Jersey. Where did you find or access any support? And then when you came to Manchester, did you, did you access any any support that you found useful? The career service in university place. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's your textbook answer there. Um, no, by the way, career services are great. Are really, really, really good. Um, it's just, yeah, I thought that would be like a, um, yeah, a, a, a sell, a plug. Um 
support. So I think when you're when you're kind of going through an identity thing, you often look for the thing that's most like you. Um, so I remember looking inwards and thinking, okay, I kind of figured out. I figured out that I'm gay. I knew that kind of a thing forever, um, and I came out. But I looked for the thing that was closest to me. So I I found two friends. Um, a small group of friends, but two of them were closest. And um, one of them works in um, one of them works in news. Um, and they were both about ten years older than me. And so I found these. Um, I don't know how I even met them, but the kind of friends in Jersey. This was so they were considerably older than I was. Um, but I think I was like, okay, you you are the most like me because they were both gay and they're the only gay people I knew. So I was like, right, well you're gay, I'm gay, therefore we will be friends, right? That's how it works. Um, and of course, that's not how it works. But in a, in a good way, and it's no disrespect to them, they're, they're lovely people. I've not spoken to them either for many years, and I don't think we're very similar, really. But I think at that time, they're the most like me that I could find, because they were, like, the only, the only gays in the village, as I felt. Um, and because I think they were older, they had a kind of slightly paternally kind of mentor kind of, like, status in my life. So there's these two people... Um, in Jersey and they definitely gave me support through that time I, and I think I really appreciated having people who at least could understand some parts of my identity and help me through that and help me through those first conversations like um, that you go through because you're not taught about like um, you know loving like relationships outside of a heterosexual context you're not taught about sex like I didn't even know about any of those things so having people educate me about those things was so um, really amazing but it did mean that I I left, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I left Jersey, came to Manchester, and then my whole ability to understand what being gay was, was kind of defined as, like, um, like, sassy, <laughs> like, sassy walking down the street, <laughs> like, all those stereotypes, like, absolutely fabulous, that was kind of, like, my only real, which I can't stand that show, like, it's so awful, like, for me, at least, <laughs> like, but, like, absolutely fabulous was kind of, like, the only real, like, identity that I had with, like, and there's not even any really gay, gay characters in that show, it's, like, too females who were working PR. <laughs> like, that was, like, what I thought was being gay. Um, being sassy, being a bitch, definitely, was one of those things. And being really judgmental. And I mean that seriously, being really judgmental. And I think um, that was my first experience of what it wanted to be gay. So when I arrived in Manchester, I was, like, really horrible. Like, I don't think I really liked myself, like, in that space. Only in hindsight. At the time, of course, I wasn't really aware of that. But through enough hindsight and a good a good deal of therapy and a lot of therapy looking back at that time, I think I arrived here very presumptuous, <laughs> quite judgmental, because um, I was like, I figured the world out. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a young gay man. I know who I am. I'm going to be Montague <laughs> and so um, yeah my ability to kind of like learn about who I was in Manchester definitely took a little bit of a time to undo some preconceived ideas of what I think all those things meant so um, yeah I definitely arrived here with I don't I don't I think I was always very open minded for sure but I think I had this kind of fairly demonstrative idea that I knew who I was and I definitely didn't you mean you never really know who you are but yeah 
I'm doing I'm doing a lot of those I think preconceived notions opening up my my eyes to the world Manchester's amazing as a city like Manchester's so amazing Manchester has such ability to kind of introduce you to um, different cultures like different kind of experiences different backgrounds it's one thing I loved about the university experience here um, in particular and I think through those three years the, the best things about Manchester was that I really felt like it gave me a brilliant grounding and ability to understand many different things so something we were, we were talking about before we recorded this was um, how my degree in particular but also the experience of Manchester I think really gave me this ability to understand um, different perspectives different people how people thought in different ways that you know life isn't just about you and your own opinion it's about um, the collective and the community and I think Manchester was the first place that I really understood what community felt like I didn't have a community really growing up right I felt very isolated so here was the first time that I felt a part of something and that was really special and really exciting and I didn't know of course I didn't know that any of this was going to lead to what's happened now but um you know to go through an experience of my own identity as a kid and, and to find that really challenging and then to come to university and um to have at least found parts of that community feeling and that identity coming to me and being able to see who I am in the eyes of other people um was so rewarding and I felt really um kind of humbled by that experience. I remember being in Manchester and doing things like, I was like, I can't remember all the titles and stuff, but like I was a student ambassador here. And like, I was one of those kids. I was like student ambassador, president of the society, like definitely like archetypal um, kid. But that was so amazing because I got to like um, see who I was through the eyes of other people. And that was like somebody who loves being a part of something. And that felt like nice to kind of, um, not feel embarrassed by that. I think there's that thing in your head where you think you you feel embarrassed by being like a SWAT or feeling that you want to be, you know, a leader in some respect. But I definitely got a lot of that juice, if you like, flowing at Manchester. So that, I think, 100% set me up for then what was going to happen, little did I know, a few years later, um, is a lot of that groundwork happened here. I was going to ask about... I'm trying to see if I can phrase this in the right way. Mm. Are there... How has Manchester, and I guess I'm thinking of the mm. gay scene here, because mm. it is known for having like a really 100%. strong gay scene. How has that kind of informed your approach to maybe what you're doing now? Like, has it informed it at all? Because it is a very different vibe, London, Manchester. Yeah, massively. So the good thing about Manchester is Manchester has a sort of like fluidity to it. Um, and that's a good word to describe Manchester in lots of respects. I think maybe that comes from the student body. Maybe it comes from that cultural mix that I do think you get. Um, but um, fluidity in the sense that, you know, I came here and I started meeting people who um, didn't feel bound by certain um uh, words that I didn't also associate with. So I'll go back to my absolutely fabulous kind of <laughs> um, metaphor thing, um, which was, you know, as being a, like a sassy gay man in the eyes of kind of like the world also comes with that kind of like slight sass and prejudice towards other people. So a stereotypical sassy gay guy you know, drinks Cosmopolitans, is best friends with a load of straight girls and goes shopping with them and probably isn't that integrated in things like the lesbian community, right? Because you look at people like that and you think, oh, like, I'm not a part of you. I don't have a sort of association with you. So my experience in Jersey and that experience, I, as I said, I felt very at odds with that. That's what I was being taught and being fed by like, the narrative of like, the gay experience. So coming to Manchester was so lovely because what happened 
thank goodness, was that I've been kind of fed all these preconceived notions about what it meant to be gay, which always, I'm not just saying this, they always didn't set well with me. And I might have externally played along with it because I wanted to just have a friend and all that stuff. But in my heart, I knew I didn't believe in any of it. So coming here and meeting people who would, like girls that had like, you know, relationships with other girls and being like, oh my God, like, you're like just really cool and you're just an interesting person and I vibe with you and like we have a similar kind of outlook on life although it shouldn't have been was actually quite surprising to me because I'd always been taught that like you'll never get along with them you're just gonna have gay male friends and the girls are gonna like love you (laughs) for being gay and that was so kind of like toxic in a lot of respects so I came here and very quickly met a few people who would use words like bisexual some people who didn't use words at all, um, who were just like, I'm just, you know, sleeping with a X right now, or this is how I identify. And then of course people in their own identities that weren't about sexuality, but they would kind of present, I guess, more in different um, gender norms that would be expected of them. And that was just like, whoa, that was so eye-opening. And I definitely think that Manchester as a place um, has a sort of fluidity to it that allows people to kind of come out of a expectation or a binary that might be expected on them. And I do think even even though London is amazing and I love it and it's home, I do think sometimes places like London can be a bit constricting because people are just trying to find their own way. There's a sort of like um, ability to kind of test out. I mean, hey, that's what I kind of said, didn't I? I wanted to come and t- test out who I was somewhere. And so um, how that has influenced me now is hugely. I don't see the world in a binary sense at all, really. Um, I don't identify as gay, really. Um, I use the word queer much more. I identify as a queer person. I didn't, I always struggled with the word gay, um, for my for myself at least. Um, and then being able to come somewhere where you could kind of, yeah, flex out and, and see other people not having to fixate so much on that sort of stuff was really exciting and yeah, cool. And you're responsible now for having to reach a whole range of voices Mm. in your role. Like, that's a huge task because we're talking about people with just such a wide range of people. How do you do that within, you know, the kind of within a rebrand to reach so many people? Um, great question. By not knowing the answer to that question is is the answer to the question. Mm. Um, there's this kind of... I've met a lot of other CEOs now. It's funny when you become a CEO because I want to introduce you to other CEOs and things that you're going to be best mates. And I'm just like, oh my God, you're so dull. I don't even want to hang out with you. That's really mean to like the general consensus. But like, you know, I've met some great CEOs, by the way, some amazing CEOs. But it's funny, people just introduce each to other people and you're just like, we're not just going to get along because we have the same job title. Um, but hey, again, that's like how the world works. So um, it's kind of funny. Um, But um, in terms of that kind of stereotype, the people that I have been introduced to, it often sits in two camps. You get the kind of very um, stereotypical, suited and booted kind of CEO types who expect that they should know at least the answers to things or, or at least are in a position where they feel like people come to them often for answers and so want to have an answer for everything. And then there's this other kind of person that I definitely get along with more who... Um, talk a little bit more about being kind of like a syndicate and, and being a kind of a place of transfer and that's how I see myself um, I'm, I think I'm very good at linking things up at 
applying, I would say I'm good at applying strategy to things like emotion and, and applying um, a, an ability to progress to feeling and identity. And those things are, are often at odds. People often see those things as not linked and I completely link them together. And I think I have to for the role that I have. Um, but what that means is, is that it's okay for me to say, I don't know what it's like to be a trans person of color. And that is so important because unfortunately, people in my position and people in my position in other organizations like ours are all too quick to say that they represent the community. I always say I do not represent the queer community. Um, for sure, do I probably, you know, ident- um, you know, uh, represent bits of it or, or do people see me representing bits of it? For sure, but I don't represent a whole collective. So if I'm gonna try and take a organization that's existed for four decades, take it through a huge rebrand task, um, point it towards a vast audience that I guess that you're saying, and, and and point that towards people that have loads of identities experiences that I have no idea about, I've got to be able to say, I don't know what that experience is, but I can probably find people that do and bring them into like that circle, empower them, entrust them, and give them an opportunity that they may not have got previously, often because of that characteristic a lot of the time, unfortunately, um, and then move us all forward together. So that's kind of been my strategy, is to say I don't know the answer. Um, because I think the minute that you do go down that road, Although I think it can work at the beginning because people go, oh my God, you're amazing. You know what you're doing. You're just so kind of quick and you can make decisions and everything. I think you can kind of burn out pretty quick because you don't you don't always kind of have the longevity that hopefully I or someone like me has. And that's really what I want to have is longevity. I don't want to be a kind of flash in the pan style leader. So this is, you're kind of hoping to go go with this for the foreseeable future? Yeah, I think so. I think when you kind of like throw your, when you sign a contract that basically says that your entire life is owed <laughs> to an organization, you have to really be like committed to it. And also my life really changed overnight and that sounds, it sounds a bit kind of dramatic, but it really did. Um, my life absolutely changed overnight. Um, I can't do things that I could do before and I can do so many other things that I could do before. I've lost a huge number of friends through this process. Um, I've, you know, met new people through this process. And so for me to turn around at any point and say, oh, I'm gonna kind of undo this and go back would feel kind of mm. um, impossible. It's like an irreversible thing in a lot of respects. So um, I think I knew I'd had to commit to it so that when, um, I talk quite a lot about being vulnerable as a leader as well, which is another thing that a lot of people have taught me not to do. They told me like, no, never be vulnerable, always be strong. And I'm like, no, nah, nah, I don't believe in that. I think it's good to be vulnerable as a leader um, and show vulnerability where it's, where it's needed. But, you know, in terms of that as well, I've talked a lot about having those moments of um, not being able to go to bed at night and knowing I have a huge amount of responsibility, um, knowing that there's a lot of people that look to me to pay their salary every month, to look after them, to give them opportunities at the ripe old age of 25, and that's a lot of pressure. Um, so struggling or at least learning how to, to deal with that, I think it's also been something that I know that if I was going to say yes and if I was going to do this job, um, I knew that I'd have to kind of do two feet first and like jump into it and not kind of hesitantly say, I'll go into it, but I'll still try and retain some of my old life. It was just a all or nothing kind of approach, I think. It's, it's really interesting you say that your life changed overnight. Yeah. Did you know that was gonna, did you know beforehand, right, as soon as this is public? 
I yeah. know my life is going to change. So did you know like what to put into place to protect yourself or anything like that, or do you just think I've just got to go with this? <clears throat> no, I'm I'm a very emotional person, but I'm also I think a lot. So definitely the former. Um, there was a lot of planning, a lot of planning, and a lot of um, a surprising number of people that were. Um, pulled in to go through my whole life <laughs> to really? make sure yeah absolutely absolutely you you it's a um, yeah you don't want to you don't want to take on a job um, in LGBTQ and have like skeletons in the closet yeah you really don't and again that sounds dramatic and it sounds like I'm you know doing something like becoming famous or something and I'm not um, and that's definitely not what I'm trying to say I was in um, the organisation that I stepped into um, appointed an editor who was you know um, removed from their position within I think five days of their appointment in the previous year um, and that rocked that whole organisation and and I think again I'm, uh, it's fair that I was about to say am I allowed to say this I can say what I want um, <laughs> I will say it um, it it very nearly probably brought that whole brand to an end um, and I think a lot of people would have taken some pleasure in seeing that brand come to an end um, and thank God that didn't happen and thank God um, and I you know will shout out without saying their names some people that were incredibly hard for that not to happen I came in uh, I say long after six months after that all happened but that that was someone's entire career taken down in five days so it wasn't um, it wasn't over uh, careful of me to go through a process I did I um, seeked out a lot of kind of support and mentorship from people um, knowing that also um, I would probably gravitate, or at least a lot of people would gravitate me to, for the wrong reasons. I have to be very careful about that. Um, you can find yourself in very vulnerable situations, um, knowing that people can see that you have access, you have privilege, that I have a huge amount of privilege and power and influence, I guess, in different respects. And so people do try to manipulate that or use it to their advantage. That's It's scary sometimes what happens to you. Um, so yeah, I don't think anything can really fully prepare you for it. But um, yeah, definitely going through Twitter. That's a <laughs> yeah. That's a good start. <laughs> social media. Yeah, right. Grew up in a social media generation, so like it's crazy. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it is quite scary. You know, you can make a mistake as a kid, which is you know. Yeah. Come could come back to bite you. And it still could. I was um and the thing was is that I always said, you know, the I'm I'm still a human being and I'm sure at some point there will be something that I'll go I'll go, oh, you know, I, I wish I didn't explain something in that way or there's words I wouldn't choose anymore. But the ability to say sorry and I made a mistake is also important. Um we live far too much, I think, in a cancelled culture nowadays. People are kind of waiting for the next person to go under the bus. And I think um that kind of aspect of the social media generation can be really negative and I've been quite vocal at the same time about saying we've got to allow people to have opportunities and chances you know no one's perfect the previous generations um, as we've seen have done more scandalous horrendous things and gone away with it um, so I at the same time you know I'm still not a perfect human being um, although hopefully you know I don't think there really is anything there that would ever you know be problematic I'm sure they would have found it by now. <laughs> <laughs> no, but also, you say that, my God. I know, no, I know. There's, um, 
I had no I've really got it like I'm I've had emails from people saying you know I will basically work until God knows whatever time to find something yeah there's a hundred percent and we were, we were talking about um, um, we were talking again before this recording about how in the LGBTQ community there's absolutely a toxicity around people trying to take each other down and not being able to be happy for each other's success um, it has been one of the biggest challenges is being a leader an LGBTQ leader in LGBTQ that has been so challenging because the people that you would think on paper would be my big, biggest supporters are sometimes the the most challenging to deal with and that's hard it's really hard um, and I found that actually it's been through allyship and other people in different sectors actually that have been more supportive um, and it's, it's, it's challenging to say that stuff sometimes because you wish that that underlying level of resentment and often jealousy wouldn't be so prevalent. But I really think we still struggle with that as a community um, to be happy for one another. So how important do you think allies are for LGBT community? Um, I mean, vitally so. Yeah, incredibly important. I think the the allyship piece is really just about awareness and um, I think the whole world really is um, going on a big awareness journey um, at the moment. I definitely think our political, our global kind of political sphere, how news is reported, I think is going on a, a good kind of progression in terms of becoming, allowing people to become more aware of what's actually happening. Um, and I think that through greater awareness of what other people go through, whether that's LGBTQ, whether that's about you know cultural differences, race, um, being more aware of how other people's lives exist is just good. It's just a good thing to become more aware and to start understand and ask questions about how other people's lives kind of operate. And I definitely think that this previous existence, I think maybe culture and society we had where we could kind of just exist in our own kind of box and stuff is becoming more challenging. And that's good, you know, things like globalization and social media and digital news has meant that people have had to start looking outside of their own sphere a bit more and see that other people exist. Um, so allyship is really, really important because what that does is, is that it demonstrates to people that you don't necessarily have to have a certain characteristic. You don't have to identify in a certain way to understand, appreciate, and hopefully celebrate somebody else's identity. Um, and that's really, really powerful. And I think allyship has the power to bring differences among us and perceive differences much closer together, where sometimes, um, especially within LGBTQ contexts, you know, you've seen communities that have had to gravitate towards one another um, to support each other through um, being persecuted um, and, you know, continually vilified. Um, you've seen those communities sometimes get very close and stick together. And actually, it's only when you sort of outreach and have a greater um, ability to interact with the rest of the world that really you start progressing I think in a lot of respects mm -hmm. okay and what advice would you give to any like graduates in the university like people who are going to start the world of work that might be LGBTQ um good question good question um go and work like do work 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 like do experience and like create things um 
I've probably started like, I don't know, 10 blogs, like a load of video things, and they all failed. Like, I mean, they failed. I mean, you know, it sounds like they were going to be anything successful, but um, they failed in the sense that I gave up on them, and then I did one again, and then I was like, oh, I don't like this anymore, and then I did another thing, and I thought, oh, it's not really who I am. But that's, that, those were all incredible to get me to where I am now. I didn't know this was going to happen so quickly, I guess, and it's amazing that it has. But, um, it was so kind of um, important to, through my graduate and like learning experience and being at university, to allow myself um, the ability to fail. Um, and I think when you're at university, because you're kind of graded on stuff, you're kind of given this notion that you can be good or bad and you can kind of be successful and get a good grade and therefore you're like, you're a good student and you'll succeed. When actually through failing, you really do learn the most, um, I think a lot of the time. So I remember being at Manchester and constantly trying to challenge myself to do other things outside of a more standard curriculum or standard experience to allow myself to kind of fail and explore things. Um, so I think really when you're at university, it's the stuff that you do outside of university, which I felt like was the most important. And at least in my interviews and the kind of progression to get this role and everything, it was always noted that the stuff that I did kind of during my university years, but that wasn't to do with the university, it always stuck out, interestingly, just from a CV perspective. That was always the thing that people wanted to talk about. Um, it was always the thing that people felt most drawn to, which is like, what are you doing when everyone else is doing the same thing? Um, so I kind of always say people to challenge themselves and think about that. What are you doing that everyone else else isn't doing? Because um, it sounds a bit pressured, but just turning out your lectures and doing a good job ain't, ain't good enough nowadays. <laughs> There's a lot of amazing people out there doing amazing things. Um, so yeah, just getting a good good grade is sadly no longer your ticket to success. <laughs> I think that's really good advice, actually. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's like real as well. I was saying um, in a different conversation, you know, when I've, I've done a couple of lectures at Manchester and I'm sure I'll do many more and like, it's nice to talk to people here. But I always say to people here and it's, again, it sounds really negative. It's not supposed to be negative. It's just real. People just don't care. Like everyone's, everyone when you go into the real world has a story about their degree and stuff. It becomes so normalized and actually that kind of, um, USP, you know, your unique selling point as an individual suddenly doesn't feel so unique anymore. Um, but there's so much unique about every individual. You don't have to be like this kind of crazy out there confident person, you know, to be unique. Uniqueness comes from who you are and how you think and all those sorts of things. So exploring those um, parts of yourself is so um, important to do so that when you go out into the real world um, after graduating or after finishing university you can show people who you are and showing people who you are is I think the real key to success Tag we have to wrap up thank you but we have one last question for you yeah so we ask this of all our guests if we gave you access to our very special time machine mm. and you could go anywhere at any time in Manchester where would you go Anywhere at any time. Yeah, you've got a time machine. You can go in Manchester. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would go to. I'd probably go to factory in the nineties or go to like hacienda. I want to see like proper Mancunian music. 
I'm proper Mancunian clubbing. Mm-hmm. And I want to see people like making out and like being gross with each other in a club. Like that's the best. <laughs> I don't actually like clubbing that much by the way. Like I'm not like a secret party fanatic. I really don't go out that much. But like there's a real kind of like secret source to like culture in a point in time mm-hmm. when you're in a nightclub and you're listening to music and people are doing what they're doing um you know whatever but um yeah i think so i w- used to walk past it it's now a block of apartments isn't it <laughs> yeah how so awfully sad i used to walk past it loads um when i lived here um at uni and i used to think about it loads and um in a weird way um, I've never thought about this actually. There's some stuff that we do within our organization. We have a lot of brand arms, if you like, to Gay Times now, we kind of like spread out. But one of our brand arms, um, definitely now I think about it, has probably got a bit of inspiration from the yellow and black line, the kind of motifs, do you remember that? They kind of had them painted on like the mm-hmm. steel girders and everything. Yeah, wow. There you go, that seeped in. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it works. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank Thank you for your time. Yeah, of course. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Your Manchester Stories. Please rate, review and subscribe or follow this podcast wherever you listen. If you are a graduate of the University of Manchester, you can connect with us at your.manchester.ac.uk. This podcast is produced by Kate Bradbury and Hayley Jane Sims on behalf of the Division of Development and Alumni Relations at the University of Manchester. The music for this podcast was supplied by Blue Dot Sessions.